Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Casualization's out of control. A third of Australians today don't have sick leave. That's just not right. It's just not what work's meant to be. Job insecurity and job quality is a defining life issue for millions of Australians, and yet it doesn't get the national attention it deserves. Hello, lovely people of podcasts, and welcome to another episode of Australian Politics Live. You are with Catherine Murphy, who is the political editor of Guardian Australia, and I'm also the host of this show. With me in the pod cave this week is the lovely Claire O'Neill. <laughs> Are you laughing about the cave? Or? I'm laughing about the cave and yeah. the fact that I'm also standing in front of a a skeleton yes. wearing a wig and a Santa hat. So it's just <laughs> adding to this really sort of fascinating feel of coming up to the Guardian office in um, the press gallery. Yes, indeed. I might, I might actually, I should, I haven't got my phone in with me. I may, I may actually pop a picture up on socials like this weekend. To see this, just, just, yep. to, just so people can experience what Claire is currently experiencing. Anyway, we digress. Claire, of course, is the Shadow Minister for Innovation. Innovation, Technology and the Future of Work. Thanks, love. Yep. Okay. Yes, yeah, so there's a few different elements of the portfolio. Now, I've invited Claire in because she's made, well, a number of very interesting contributions since Labor's election loss in 2019. But more recently, Guardian readers will be familiar, I think, with a speech that she made, is it is it only a couple of weeks ago? It is, I yeah, think. about three weeks ago. Three weeks ago, yeah. which was drilled down into this issue of, well, the, the vulnerability that we've got, I suppose, in the COVID recovery that basically we've got a wave of unemployment that is going to come through the system now. And Claire pointed in that contribution to the vulnerabilities of male, a number of male workers in that period of the recession. Then this week, uh, we're recording on Wednesday, Claire's in town because she's given an address to the National Press Club. Where were you going with this address? What was the purpose of it? I wanted to talk about COVID in the long view. So I know a lot of your listeners will share this frustration. So much of politics is kind of about what's happening that day and the next week and the next year. And I really wanted to try to think about what's going to happen to Australia over the coming decades and ask the question of whether the policy sort of assumptions, the foundation ideas we have for public policy in Australia are going to serve us as we look to the future. And what I argue today is that there's sort of five big structural changes to public policy that I think are going to require us to think very differently about as we go into the 2020s and beyond. Mm. Some of the concepts that Claire raised, we're going to drill into a little bit more in this conversation. So I want to start with work mm. and the nature of work. You have identified 
I mean, this is a very broad paraphrase, but that that COVID has exposed pre-existing vulnerabilities among workers or mm. all categories of workers yeah, in the labour yeah. market, right? So workers in the gig economy, the, well, let's just call it for what it is, the exploitation of participants in the care economy yeah. in terms of their remuneration and prospects, right? So the pandemic's brought that into sharp relief. It's been more visibly in front of people. So yes, it's a problem, but what do you think the solutions are? Like, obviously, in the past, and this sort of goes back to your central point, right, does past guidance service in the present, right? But in the past, if if we were looking at this as a labour, like just as a straight labour market problem, well, you would look at stronger labour market regulation. Uh, would you look at uh, stronger powers for unions to organise? What will fix it, do you think? Uh, well, there's lots of problems. And the reason there are lots of problems is because I think this issue's just kind of run along unchecked for quite a long time. And one of the things I talked about today was the fact that the experience of Australians at work needs to be the central focus of Australian public policy, not seen as some kind of output of a bunch of other political decisions that we make. So, you know, over the past sort of six months, I've talked about Women in COVID, you talked about caring professions, insecurity and casualisation and underemployment are acute issues for women, especially low-skill women. And then on the male side, the way the economy is changing in a long-term sense is affecting low-skill men really badly. Mm. And there's really a question here about what do we want low-skill men to do in Australia's economic future? And then you mentioned gigs. So there's all these other sort of challenges that are flying at us that are deteriorating the quality of work. So what do we do about these things? I think long term, we need to help Australians adjust to some structural changes in the economy. So for example, Australia's economy is generating lots of high skill jobs, quite a lot of low skill jobs and not a lot in the middle. Mm. We want to help Australians get high skill jobs if they can. And that means a good education system that suits everyone. We need to fix our skill system, and this is probably the, the weeping saw in the whole education system. The fact a skill system is not doing really any of the things that we want it to do. It's not serving students, it's not serving employers, and it's training people in a bunch of stuff that we don't need when we have urgent needs in other areas that it's not delivering. So I think, you know, there are just basic funding questions there, but also I think it's time to acknowledge that the demand-driven nature of that system isn't actually giving us what we want. So that's part of the answer. I think for people who are relatively lower skill, we need to have better laws. And all this last seven years that the government's been in power, we should have just had monitoring and proper regulation of some of the things that have gone on. So casualisation's out of control. A third of Australians today don't have sick leave. That's just not right. It's just not what work's meant to be. Job insecurity and job quality is a defining life issue for millions of Australians and yet it doesn't get the national attention it deserves and the gig economy, these sort of new issues, they mm. require better laws and mm. so the parliament does need to step up and um, engage. And, and better laws, like obviously in terms of casualisation, there's been a couple of, well, a number of court decisions but a couple of big ones recently that are, have prompted employers to look at whether they have fake casuals in yeah. the sense of people who are constantly casually employed, i.e. not casuals. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's sort of like the courts have kind of moved a bit on casualisation. I'm not in a position because I haven't studied it closely to say whether or not this is genuinely transformative across the economy, but mm. I'm aware it's a thing, right? So you're talking about regulation. So in terms of 
gig economy, what would that look like? I don't mean down to the fine print in the yeah. law. I just mean what are you regulating for? Well, I don't have the full answer to this and, and neither does anyone else in the world. So mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so important to note that and, and you'll see all around the world Parliament sort of grappling with how to deal with these things. I think we need to have a much clearer definition of which gig economy workers are employees and which aren't. So yeah. Australian law is a bit fuzzy on that area at the moment so no one really knows where they stand. The thing that is most troubling to me, Catherine, is when people invent technological solutions and then don't and then use them to subvert the law, basically. So, mm. for example, we know for sure at the moment that a lot of gig economy workers are not making minimum wage mm. because they're being employed on what, you know, the employer calls a contract but for all intents and purposes is a job. So that can't be allowed. We've we fought, you know, to have a good minimum wage in this country for many years and it shouldn't be disregarded because someone invented an app. Mm. So I think just being clear about where as a parliament we draw the line and the minimum wage is a very obvious one we have to be a little bit lighter on our feet about how people will try to to stop following the law. If I can just mention one of the other egregious um, issues in the workforce at the moment is about labour hire, where instead of employing people to come and work on your shop floor, for example, you hire a labour hire company to just bring them in. Mm. Those workers have no rights. They get paid less than the people they're working against and they've got no power in their workplace. If they complain to the boss... The boss just says to the labour hire company, I don't want that one back tomorrow. Mm. And you'll see people who've been in labour hire acting for all other intents and purposes as an employee for months and months and months and even years. And that's not right. That's Mm. absolutely not right. Mm. So it's just accepting that we do need regulation at the lower skill end of the market to make sure that jobs are quality jobs. And we're going to have to play a bit of catch up, I think, when Labor Next gets into government to try to fix some of these issues. And what about unions, Claire? Like... It's sort of like at one level, you know, when I was sort of started as a reporter and covered industrial relations at the Fin Review 20 years ago, it's kind of like at one point unions would have been central to the solution, right? But obviously I'm aware the union movement is trying to address this, but, you know, density is now so low in terms of penetration of membership in the economy are unions, I mean, this is sort of sounds pejorative, but I don't actually mean it that way. Are unions even relevant anymore? Mm, yeah, I mean, they actually are hugely relevant and they're integrally involved in the policy making process for this sort of thing, as they should be, because the truth is that they understand these problems better than any member of parliament is going to be able to understand because they're on the shop floor seeing it happen before their eyes. And the you know, fights that they're getting into to try to sort of help these workers who are being exploited is, you know, phenomenal. That's what they sort of go to work and do every day. So I I know that the unions are going to be a big part of the solution here. And do, as well as the regulation that you're pointing towards, at least in the sort of low skill end of the economy, do we need regulation in order to expand the capacity of unions to organise. Like there were, there's been long debates, as you know, right, about rights of entry, mm. about just being able to basically access workplaces mm. in order to recruit new members. Do we need to look at that as well? Mm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, when I talk to people who are trade unionists today, they've got 
ways that the law is preventing them from advocating for their members. And, you know, trade unions are a legitimate, important, fundamental part of our economy and our labour market. We've got to provide them room to do what they do. And, you know, the government's sort of laid into unions a lot over the last seven years, but when they want to negotiate with workers, that's who they bring in the door. So mm. I think they're acknowledging there that, that unions are actually Yeah, well, there's pivotal. been this interesting dynamic in COVID that you exactly. referred to where unions have been brought back into the equation. I mean, the government needed them because they needed to make rapid fire changes to labour laws in order to roll out the income support. Yeah. And I think the government has tried to keep the unions at the table for as long as possible, Mm. strangely, Mm. in these negotiations that they've been doing about labour laws. Mm. But fundamentally, you know, at some point in all of these conversations, whether you conduct them or whether the government does, you come up against irreconcilable interests mm. at some point, right? Yeah, I think so. But I mean, I think, I, I, don't, I don't know what's come out of the discussion with business and unions on the IR front. I think there's usually more common ground, honestly, than we expect there to be. But mm. um, I guess we'll see what comes out of that. The important thing is that when we need a voice for workers, we head straight to the union movement. That's not going to change. And unions have got a right and an obligation to speak for workers. And if laws prevent them from doing that, then the laws do need to be changed. Okay. Let's move on to immigration, which you also flagged in the speech. And this is, well, there's so many. We could have a whole conversation about immigration. (laughs) We we could do an hour on immigration, Sandy, we can't. Uh, But anyway, you've raised a couple of markers. One is sort of about the mix without sort of discounting family reunion and other humanitarian streams or whatever. You've made a a big pitch for skilled Mm. migration. And you've pointed out, obviously, the global competition for the highest skilled workers, be they in STEM or or wherever, right? So I've had some experience with this because one of my kids has been working in in America in the tech sector. So I know exactly, one, this is a global labour market and two, other countries are doing a lot more than us in order to bring people in. So let's just start with incentives. So what do do we think is necessary? Do we need a special category of visa? Do we need to well, put put hard cash money on the table um, for people with very specific skill sets that we need in order to settle in Australia. Do we need to give them a fast track to residency? Mm. Like, what what do we need in mm. order to pull these people in? Because yeah. it's sort of like fundamentally. I mean, you might have a different view on this to me, but it's sort of like one of the big pulls that a country like America has, for example, is that you're working in the epicenter yeah. of the innovation in that particular sector, Mm. whereas in Australia it's sort of got that branch office feel, right? (laughs) Well, I mean, just realistically, right? I mean, I think think that that may historically have been the case, especially in tech, but I do think that's changing and Mm. a couple of big tech successes here have made a big difference to the environment. That's true. But just going back to your question, so I'm arguing that we need new sources of growth in Australia around science and technology and innovation and manufacturing. And one of the fastest ways for us to ignite these engines is to start using our immigration program, one of the most powerful things that government has at its disposal, to bring the best people in the world at these things here to Australia. Mm. So what do we need to do? I mean, the first thing is that the way the system works at the moment is it's pretty easy to come to Australia as an unskilled temporary migrant, and we have 800,000 of them in the country today, it is very hard to come here as a permanent skilled migrant. And that's a problem because if you're a world-class data scientist, why would you move your family to Australia for a job that you might do for two years and then you'll be forced back home again? Mm -hmm. So there's no pathway to these Mm -hmm. people setting down roots, which is exactly what we want them to do. 
we've had historically an immigration program that's been about permanency and citizenship. We mm. want, I mean, the best thing about multiculturalism in Australia is all these people have come here and they've established lives and businesses and kids and invested in a local school and that's what we want. So I think firstly it's just about reducing that. But there's no no reason why anyone would do that right now. So we need to create a proper pathway for mm-hmm. them to come here, to settle here and to live here. As for what else has to be done, I think probably more important than anything else is actually just getting out there and getting into this sort of getting into the mix. Like Canada, for example, has made this one of its aspirations and that's been a particular feature because of Trump in America. A lot of people wanted to leave and Canada's so close. So there is a absolutely gangbusters tech community in Canada just because of Americans mm. who didn't want to live there anymore. Yeah. But we're not in that conversation. We're not over there marketing ourselves as a great destination. And when I talk to tech people in particular who've come to Australia, they talk about these pivotal moments that made them decide to come home. And one I'll never forget was a woman telling me that they'd taken their child into kindergarten and the kindergarten had to go through a process with the parents of showing them where the kids would hide if a gunman came in. And mm-hmm. she said, she went home that night, she just said, we're, 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 going, we're going home. That's why people want to come to Australia. It's not because it's going to be, you know, the business hub of the world. It's because you live a bloody great life here and you can run a world-class business in a safe, beautiful country. Mm. I mean, I sound evangelical because I am. Why would anyone not want to live in Australia right now? Sure. So we've got this really big opportunity, I think. You know, America's in disarray. There's so many reasons why people would want to come here right now. Okay, so marketing, yeah, makes total sense and pathways. What about sort of more broadly, like stepping off the skilled point? Mm -hmm. Let's just look at the dynamics in the economy at the moment. Yeah. Right. So obviously migration sort of tanked yep. courtesy of the of the pandemic. That has significant economic implications for Australia because of the drivers of growth. Yeah. At some point the tap will have to be turned on again. You know, hard to specify exactly when that will happen, but obviously at a safer point than we are now in a public health sense. Mm. But then Turning on the tap is politically complicated because we'll get to Australia first and sovereign capability in a minute. Yeah. But we're in that environment where we'll be in a recession or Apache recovery based on current indications. Mm. In that sort of environment, that's always the toughest sell for immigration of any type Mm. from let's invite Bill Gates to take up permanent residency (laughs) here to let's get a great hairdresser from the Philippines, right? Like that is the worst time to be making a positive environment or the most difficult time to Mm. be making a positive argument for immigration. What do you think about that, Mm. the difficulties about that? What I I think is that this is the most obvious policy area that we have to start with a blank piece of paper and when you say turn the tap back on if we just decide or we're just going to have had this great opportunity to really think through our immigration program what is this for what are we trying to do and how do we design it then I'll be so disappointed what a missed opportunity that would be the fascinating thing about our immigration program today is that you know we started back in 2005 bringing in more temporary unskilled migrants to Australia. And that number of unskilled migrants coming to Australia has gone up by two and a half times since 2005. 
that happened without a white paper, without a policy conversation, without any discussion mm. with Australians. It just evolved. Mm. Nothing should evolve as important as immigration is. Nothing as important as that should just be allowed to drift into something that's been so important to our economy and our way of life. So I'm perhaps not answering your question as directly as you might like, but I, what I would like to see is for us to just have a pause here. We actually have breathing space to think this through. Let's just not go back to the way it was before. It wasn't serving our interests. Let's have a good, thorough national debate about what immigration's for and then design a program that meets our needs. Mm. I know what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. And you're right in the sense that we do have an opportunity to press reset and we should look at it holistically. But that broader issue, though, of how to how to well i mean market is a stupid word how to how to make the case for immigration in depressed economic circumstances mm. that requires immigration in order to get out of the depressed economic circumstances how do you think about that like because both you and i are very interested in policy right yeah <laughs> yes i am <laughs> you right? are, yes okay right that's our thing we, we quite like it um uh, but it's sort of like it's it's beyond a much and all as I'm validating the technocratic point, right, yeah. in the sense of let's actually do it right rather than mm. just make it up as we go along mm. and slide into some mm. indeterminate outcome, right? I'm with your sister. Mm. Like, let's actually not do that. Yeah. But that sort of visceral political argument that ensues mm -hmm. because of our history about immigration yep, in this sure, country, right? Sure. So how do you approach having the technocratic argument mm -hmm. In terms of, you're right that the pandemic creates this space, right, to do something else, but it also creates complications mm -hmm. around doing other things yeah. or even doing the status quo, to be frank. Yeah. So, how yeah, do you I mean, I think the program becomes very easily to defend when it's clearly driven in the national interests. And, and that's why those two things, the conversation and the, and the argument to Australians are intimately connected. Mm. I want to be able to go back to my constituents and say that every person coming into this country after COVID is thoughtfully being brought here, is going to make a contribution, is going to settle, engage, be a part of Australian society and build their lives here. We're going to have temporary migrants, so not, of course, of course we will. That's, I'm not saying, you know, that that's you know, going to be scrapped completely, of course it's not. I'm just saying is having 800,000 unskilled migrants here at, all at once really the right outcome for an immigration mm. program? So, yeah, I don't think Australians, like Australians are proud of our multiculturalism. I think they don't like to be talked down to about immigration because they're living it and they're seeing it and they've got an experience that they want to share and maybe we just need to have just a little bit more trust that we can have a national conversation that isn't racist mm -hmm. about immigration. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, 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 a, that's a very worthy aspiration. <laughs> Sticking in the sort of Australia first frame, because it is the season, it is the times, another uh, area you raised and has been bubbling along in the background yeah. for much of the year is this sovereign capability debate. Mm -hmm. Uh, obviously, the pandemic exposed weaknesses in global supply chains, yep. and you know, yada yada. But every, I'm sure everyone listening to the pod will be across that. Now the debate becomes: to what extent and at what price? I guess you well, nationalise is the wrong word in this context, but you bring that capability back on shore, right? Because we've always done the sort of comparative advantage thing, exactly, right? Yep. So now it's sort of like, okay, if we want to reverse engineer that, because we're 
geostrategically we're in trouble times. We can't rely on global supply chains to work seamlessly just because if it's not a pandemic, then it, it might be a trade war or it could be something else, right? So, but my question it really is that direct. So how much, uh, I, get, I get that we've got to have this debate, but how much should we bring back onshore and at what cost? Because obviously to have a manufacturing sector in Australia in the past that has required protection, mm -hmm. for example, right? So would you go as far as that in terms of how important is it for you to have domestic capability in whatever designated sectors is determined? Is, yeah. it, is protection on the table? Yeah. So just starting from first principles, this pushback against globalisation, I think, was there well before yeah. COVID came along. Sure. But I think COVID blew the thing right over. And certainly a lot of policymakers, I think, who would have turned their nose up a bit at questions about national sovereignty are now having to say, well, actually, yeah. <laughs> you guys did have a point. Yeah. Um, so globalisation insofar as that means global institutions that help govern the world are very important for Australia. So none of this should be read as we're going to disengage from the World Health Organisation yeah, or sure. the UN. Th those are crucially important and we need to be full, um, fully participating members of them. I think the question we want to ask ourselves is if another massive crisis hit, you know, we need to just do a bit of risk planning. And I think that's particularly important because even when COVID goes away, we're going to be living in a much more fragile world than we have been for mm. the last 30 or 40 years. Mm. And we have to confront that. And, you know, we're in a region that's going to have a bit of instability and that's just the reality. So I think thinking about things, we need to do some planning about, you know, what are we going to do? Can we make medical supplies if we need to do it? Do we have fuel reserves that are going to leave us feeling? The, the whole point of this, I think, is to be able to engage with the outside world confidently so we don't have to fear of being too dependent on other countries to do some fundamentally important things. The other thing I just want to mention is you, you raised manufacturing. I think, you know, globalisation was meant to make Australia's economy hyper-competitive and it's done that in, in some respects, but it's also massively narrowed the economy, mm. so especially with our exports. Like almost half of our exports today go to one country mm. Um, the top 10 exports from Australia are all natural resources except for education and tourism, yeah. which are education is a you know very high skill sector, but you know we're not exporting inventions and ideas mm. and yeah, services you know, and commodities. Exactly. Mm. So I think we need to really have a good look at that because manufacturing is too important to just let it wither on the vine because we're not kind of naturally getting to be the best in the world, especially when countries all over the world are supporting the manufacturing industry. So how do we do it? I think the policy tools probably need a little bit of an update. Um, so I've got the innovation portfolio and I think we need to be thinking much more about helping Australia agree on what we want to be best in the world at. And it's obviously areas which we're already good at, but perhaps not world-class. So how do we get to be world-class? So it's not about tariffs or anything like that. Mm. It's about thinking what skills do we need to help this sector be the best in the world? Um, what kinds of investments in science and research do we need to do? So it's more about thinking about this, I think, at the inputs level and then helping our industries that way. Mm -hmm. But that's what's happening all over in the world. This idea we have in Australia that government doesn't have anything to do with the economy and government's not involved, which is, you know, ridiculous. Horseshit. Yeah, absolutely mm. ridiculous. Anyway, mm. like let's just accept government's really important. It's more than a third of our GDP in Australia. Let's be a bit more strategic and targeted about how we want our economy to look and 
you know, think creatively about but, what government can do. But you're sort of saying more at the direct support end than the let's build the, you know, let's let's construct the moat end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think constructing the moat brought us a lot of other problems, which was genuine inefficiencies. But globalisation kind of um, without much else going on in the background has taken us in the other direction, which mm. is that now we're world-class at mining and agriculture, which is really good, but ultimately we need more plays than that as yeah. a country if we yeah. want to grow. Well, and uh, which leads me to climate change and risk of stranded assets with you know <laughs> such wealth. Yeah. Seriously. I mean, yeah. this is one of the really sort of under-observed element in the climate debate is how exposed Australia's national wealth is to commodities that have a limited lifespan. Yep in terms of exports under a carbon-constrained world. But anyway, let's we don't have to get into the weeds on that. Obviously, there is a live debate in your own show, which I'm sure you're painfully aware about. Uh, People about... keep reminding me. So. <laughs> oh, God, honestly, seriously, I just want to bash my head against a wall. But anyway, uh, we are obliged, obviously, to have this debate once again. So what are your thoughts on it? At the press club, you were you were a bit down on targets. Well, I'm not down on targets. I just don't think that's the beginning and the end of the conversation. And I think we, we should be having a broader conversation about how we're actually going to meet the targets that we set. Um, the coalition has made targets that isn't really doing anything about them. So that's not exactly a policy success. So I just think, stepping back, if I can say to your listeners... I'm really proud of Labor's record on climate action. We're the, actually the only political party that's done something serious, worthy and um, something that worked about climate and we will, when we're next in government, of course, we're going to take this very seriously. I think the other thing that gets a bit lost in this conversation is that we do need to move more quickly and that's not just because of the catastrophic consequences of not doing anything about climate change, but there's a huge bloody whopping economic opportunity mm. here for the country that can only be captured if we come to the table, you know, with the right policies and show that we're doing the right thing. You know, Joe Biden over in the US is investing $1.5 trillion in renewable energies technologies. Like we're competing with mm. the Americans on this mm. and we're doing very little here. So I think Focusing on that um, opportunity and jobs angle is something that's really important to me. And in terms of targets and that sort of thing, we've got a 2050 target of zero net emissions. That's consistent with where we need to be if you're going to be taken seriously on this. And the government doesn't have that. I don't think they get a hard enough time about that. Mm. They're not doing enough. They're mm. hardly doing anything mm. about this problem. And the constant focus is on labour, what labour's no, going to no, do, and sure. we, we can't they, do anything about that, it right no, now. That's absolutely fine, but yeah. they, get, they get a pretty hard time from me, Claire. <laughs> no, but, I'm but, glad to hear it. Glad but, to hear uh, it. But anyway. Yeah. But as for the 2030 targets, yeah. which I think is you know where, where everyone seems to be most interested, we haven't made a decision about that. But I know I'll be comfortable with it when we do because, you know, the discussion internally in labour is that of course, this is a serious, massive problem and we are a serious force. We want to be in government and any responsible government today is doing something that's appropriate about climate. And especially with the Biden government in the US, that is going to make a difference to the global context. And you can already see Morrison sort of shifting on his feet about how he's going to kind of mm. re-engineer what he's doing. I mean, at the conference they were at the other day, I think it was... Um, one of the heads of government meeting, he was sort of giving a little lecture about climate policy in Australia. I just thought this is embarrassing. So I think they're going to have to move a little bit as well. I think it's going to be 
moving in a more positive direction. It's just been very difficult when the US hasn't been showing any global leadership. But as you say, that's that's a step change. Obviously, the new administration will inject new energy into the international climate mm. process. It's yet to be seen how much actual bilateral pressure America will put on Australia about this stuff because obviously a relationship's more complicated than a single mm. issue. So, but... So anyway, I agree, right, internationally the outlook's better than it's been for five years, right, but still there are complicated issues to resolve here. So you're you're not, again, a medium-term target. You're just saying targets aren't the only part of the equation. Yeah. Is that what you I mean? Think, I think targets, no, I, I'm very, I mean, of course, targets are really important. It's just that it's not the beginning and the end of the conversation. And I think back in the day where we were looking at single economy-wide solutions to climate, such as a uh, carbon tax, um, the target was perhaps more of a central focus. When you talk to climate specialists today um, and the ones that I talk to, no one's advocating that type of solution anymore because it's not moving quickly enough across enough industries. Mm -hmm. So what they're talking about is doing industry-by-industry approaches where you actually sit down with the workers and the owners of capital and the companies in this sector and you sit around a table and say, we need to bring down emissions. How are we going to do it in a way that's going to work for all these parties? Mm -hmm. And you force change that way. So only just to say we'll have targets, it's important, but I just think, you know, the the, the government's got a target; they're not getting anywhere yeah, near yeah, it. Yeah. So no, yeah. no, no, that's that, that 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 that's understood. Anyway, and a note on which sadly we must finish because Claire has a plane to catch, <laughs> and <laughs> and my producer will kill me if we go too much longer. Anyway, thank you very much for the conversation, Claire. I really do appreciate it. Thank you to Miles Martignoni, who's the executive producer of this program. Thank you to Hannah Izzard. We will be back next week. Great to be with you and your viewers. Thanks, Catherine. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.